Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the engineering side of data. New year, this is the first episode of the year, so I'm pretty excited to get back in the saddle and, and do more podcasts for everybody. Uh, my name is Bob Hafner. I'm joined by Brian McMillan, and we're going to be talking about data engineering for non-data engineers, kind of an alternate path or another option to do data engineering. Brian, please introduce yourself, and thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. Uh, my name is Brian McMillan, and I am a well, long-term 50-plus year or 15-plus year um, career enterprise architect, primarily in the data and analytics space, business intelligence space for large companies. I worked for Hewlett, spent most of my career at Hewlett Packard in electronic data systems. And the, let's see, in October of 2020, um, I left the position I was at with a um, defense contractor and left that position to write a book. Um, called Building Data Products, Introduction to Data and Analytics Engineering for Non-Programmers. A uh, little bit of, we'll get to the book in a little bit. Um, the little bit about, a little bit more about me. Um, I am not a computer science guy. I'm a business guy. Uh, my degree's in economics. A um, little, little unclear how I got into this role. <laughs> um, but mainly I came in from the, I came in from the, the business and the analytics development side of things, um, and then got involved in the whole, you know, enterprise architecture space. Um, so the book that I wrote was geared towards experimenting around a problem that I saw was that we have all this knowledge trapped up in, you know, our business units in companies, you know, whether it's, you know, manufacturing or, finance or quality, we have lots of really great domain expertise in this area. You know, like all the, all the knowledge of what's really going on is trapped in these business units. And, you know, we have lots of people with really good, you know, Excel skills and, you know, maybe they, they know some, maybe a little bit of database querying ability. You know, if you, like they query, they know how to, they may have been given access to query a data warehouse, but that's about it. They don't really know how, how that warehouse was built. They don't know how to transition their skill sets from being Excel based to working more with code, like a software developer. And I wanted to try to work through what would it look like if you had someone with great domain knowledge, great Excel skills, what would it take to get them over the edge? into that software development world. So, you know, treat everything as code, you know, think about things like source control, think about things like the, the full stack development. You know, you have to, you have to go from, you know, you, you got to think about the platform. You got to think about security. You've got to think about the front end. You got to think about the back end. all of those pieces that, you know, we, we handle in the IT world, in the software development world, but in the, more business focused world, we don't either that's done for us or we don't have access to it. So we have no visibility to what's really going on under the covers. So the book is about going through some business concepts to allow, you know, to help the IT people who are coming in to help understand what the business problems are and help the business people understand what the IT problems are. So a little bit of, a little bit of that back and forth at the beginning. And then 
the rest of the book, the, I think that's probably a third of the book. And then two, the last two thirds of the book go through a project from start to finish, building a data product that ultimately ends up on Google's cloud infrastructure. You know, so we deploy to production. Um, starting with the data we have, which is always garbage, you know, if there's one thing we'd all agree on is that the data that we get, the data that we have to work with is typically really problematic. Gotcha. That makes sense. Now, some of the things that you mentioned sound similar to this uh, popular concept as of late for analytics engineering. What yeah. separates, what's different about the approach that you're proposing in the book differ from analytics engineering? Well, it's similar in that, you know, that what we're trying to do with analytics engineering is we're trying to find the domain, the people with the domain knowledge and let them start to do things like work on a certain set of tables and a certain schema in the database, you know, build the tables you need to do the analytics work you need. And you take ownership of that. So in that regard, it's this, it is the same thing. And that's why the, you know, in the title, there's both data engineering and analytics engineering. And that analytics and engineering piece, the way that it's being packaged up right now and promoted looks to me like it's very tool specific. You know, in order to be an analytics engineer, what you need to, what you need to do is use DBT and you will become an analytics engineer. That's, that's my cynical side response to a lot of what's going on. Oh, in the database, it's all, it's all going to be snowflake no choice there and everything will just work out magically. But what, what you're forgetting in there is you're forgetting that, well, where do you get the data that you build your analytics engineering pipelines on? There's a lot of work that you have to do to get, get into that, to get into that space. You have to, there, it's important to understand the full scope of what you're working on. You know, even if it's just cursory, like you need to know what the total solution looks like so that you can help to steer directions and not get into my big worry. You know, I've been at this a long time and my, my big worry is what I see with the modern data stack right now is we're starting to silo again, just like we did with, you know, in the, in the bad old days with, you know, well, you just need an Oracle data, you need an Oracle data warehouse, you need Informatica to do all of your extract, transform and load. And then you also need to do your front end work, which we're going to use business objects for that. And, and somebody needs to build the semantic model over the data warehouse. And then we build, and then, then you can build your own reports. And what, you know, of course, what we see there is we see a lot of people doing a lot of custom SQL work on top, you know, with business objects and, and the, the workflow is business analytic. The, the business analyst does the analysis of the data set. They work with the ETL developer to develop the ETL workflow. Mm -hmm. Then there's some data modeling work that gets interweaved in with those two teams. And then you have the, the whole DBA group managing the database. And then you have the people who are doing the analytics development, you know, the, the BI developers, and there's this throwing things over the fence and very narrow tools. And pretty quickly you start to get people who are very specialized and siloed in their area. And 
They do not know how to do the other pieces of the puzzle. And they also, you know, because they're also tied to the tool and they don't under, they don't have the flexibility to be able to use tools in different ways, be able to assess when the tool that they're using, it doesn't work. And, and that's a, okay. that's a difficult problem. And I, and I really worry that we're going back, you know, that we're going back into that space where we're going to see things that are very siloed. Get a hammer, use it for everything type of approach. Yeah. yeah. Right. With the and, tool limitations. You know, all of these tools are great. Don't, don't get me wrong here. These, these sure. tools in their, their narrow focus are really fantastic, but they're not always appropriate for every use they're, they, they will be misused and, you know, a columnar, you know, I'll just say this again. A columnar database is not an appropriate data storage tool for all use cases. No, that's very true. I think that so is one of the. Maybe, you know, so you need to understand there's, a, there's this architecture piece that you need to understand at least, definitely at least at a high level to go, you know, this, I really shouldn't be doing, I can get my tool to do this, this task but this isn't the best way to do it. And you end up with all these workarounds and, and I can see in, you know, DBT is filled with a lot of like using seed, using common table expressions to build a table is fantastic. If you're an analytics engineer, I can just build encapsulate the table. I want the, my source tables, and then I can, you know, build my target table and everything that goes on between is just magic. That's great. But then you start having to do more complicated things and you can't, you need to have more complicated structures. So you throw in all this um, Jinja templating and really maybe you should have just gone back and just used plain SQL and created your tables that you were accessing. Um, if you want to do complex analytics, you probably need CTEs anyways, but they're to help you do the analytics. They're the temporary tables that may get spun off into materialized tables later. And, and that seems like a better, a better flow to me rather than trying to make it really easy to just, yeah. there's a lot of value yeah. in getting answers quickly. Yeah. There's also a lot of value in stepping back and doing the right engineering work after. Sometimes we forget to do that, that yep. rework after, that rework and that refactoring after. Yeah. I think your, your point about um, analytics engineering having a limited scope. And what I mean by that is data engineering is pretty vast. There's a lot of things that it could entail. And analytics mm -hmm. engineering does a really good job at one specific yeah. area. Yeah. And if you try to expand that within that tool set or that blueprint, it can get a little messy. I mean, I, you know, e.g. your example with Jinja templating and doing yeah. things of that nature, it can get a little bit rough. So... No, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned domain knowledge earlier in the conversation. Why is I think that's important. Tell me why you think that's important. Um so just a, a quick little story here. When I was working for Raytheon, um, I hired in, in the quality department um, because they needed to they needed to build a quality database. So we started down this road. It was a great opportunity because, you know, in, to 
let a business team do the IT do you know IT work, just straight up IT work. Build a warehouse. Um, doesn't happen very often, so I was really excited for the opportunity. But we started, you know, looking at all of the data that they were consuming, you know, all of the data they were making their business decisions on in the quality space. And very quickly, we found out all of this data is just like wrong. Like the, the way it was structured was not giving people the answers that they needed. And they didn't have the tools because they didn't have the tools or, or the knowledge to, you know, they didn't have the technical knowledge to be able to go through and say, you've got lots of duplicate data in here and you're, you're overcounting everything. Like the count of the products yeah. that you thought you were manufacturing are wrong. And we, we can find that with the technical knowledge, but what we quickly found out was we solved that problem. That was pretty easy to go through. We'll just, we'll just manipulate the data to get the right counts. But then we saw things like serialized parts that were going into production multiple times. You know, a part would go in through the workflow and, and we built a model to basically watch the parts go through the production process. And, but then we'd see these loops where a part would come out and then it would go back in and then the part would come out and go back in. Well, that, okay, the code's right. The code is actually showing the right thing. And that took a while to be able to piece that out. But then you're missing the part of why does that happen? And I always thought, you know, you, you put a part in, it goes through, it gets rejected, it gets scrapped or something, and then it comes back in. And, and some amount of rework and reinsertion in the process flow is great. But if you're doing that, if you're doing that, um, let's just say over 20 times, yeah, you, you have, that doesn't make any sense to me. And we had people on the team who had lots of experience. So one person on the team in particular who had, you know, his entire career was spent in manufacturing. He says, oh, you know, that's just, we're just reinserting the part. You have to understand what this part is. This part is a sensor that we can barely test because it's so sensitive. The, the, our ability to test is a, about equal with the, the ability of the sensor to operate. And it goes in a big vacuum chamber and it's cooled down to negative whatever. And then it's heated up to here and we get failures. So we pull it out and then we put it back in and we do that cycle until we get a good match between all these components that have very tight tolerances. And we don't have a good way to not do that to get some, uh, complete product through it's like oh that makes all the sense in the world so if you that's that's an extreme example of the domain knowledge it says mm -hmm. you know oh that's that is that makes sense we just need to accommodate that that's going on that becomes a thing that we are going to track separately now, you know a product that we are going to produce that says you know here's here's what our rework looks like and we'll we'll track that separately as something else you know, and on a more basic example, things like, you know, it, it, like in an executive reporting level, all of the data comes into the executive reporting system and it gets grouped by, you know, product, but you don't really, the data comes from lots of different places and the product names don't match. You know, so there's this master data management thing that you need to put in place 
you know, the, the whole, the whole master data management data governance piece needs to come in place. And, and you need someone with the domain knowledge to say, Hey, that is this, you know, product A is product B. And I know the names are not the same, but for purposes of this, we need to yeah. alias them so that they have a consistent view because that's what the executives are expecting. They don't want to know the low level details that, you know, this happens to be this variant of this product. They just want to know that it's this product. Yeah. We, and their conversations, how they measure their world, they consider yeah. it the same. Yep. So that's an, that's another example, kind of a less extreme example of the domain knowledge, but we have all this knowledge out there. People are doing their jobs. And this is one of the problems with, I think one of the problems that we're, struggling with, and this is a big problem that I'm, that I'm concerned with is, you know, the people who have the domain knowledge have full-time jobs. They don't have the, they don't have the capacity to know how to learn how to go do all this technical stuff. There are people who, there are people who are pretty technical, you know, you, you finance is a great place to find them. You know, there, there are finance people who really know how to drive the tools that they've got access to. So how do we, as IT people, how do we find those people and train them? And what do we train them on? Like what, what's going to bring them value? You know, what, what skills do they, what skills can they learn that will dramatically increase the value that they can get out of the analytics they have to do? And countered by the amount of time it's going to take them to learn how to do that. So that was one of the, that was one of the big drivers is to getting people, you know, if you show someone how to, you know, workflow is a good example. Everybody's got, everybody wants to automate any job they have so that they're not tied to their desk on Monday morning. Is there a way for us to do that so that they're not bogged down by some complicated, you know, if you show someone who is, has spent their entire career using Excel, you show them a Python script and you say, you just need to alter these, you know, 10 lines here in this block. They're just going to glaze over and they're not, yeah. you'll, you'll inevitably you'll find someone who's interested in learning to program, but generally they're not. But if yeah. you show them, you know, you can run this command line. Let me show you what it does. This command line will load the data into the database. This command line will execute a SQL query. And it looks just like your command that you put in the Excel formula bar. You know, here's this, you know, some parentheses do this. Okay, I got that. But I'm going to show you this Unix command line utility that says load the data into, you know, load the, do this, perform this action on the database against this database, the next, you know, your first parameter, and then you, and execute the SQL code. Well, that's just a command, a function and two parameters. That's not too difficult. And, and if you can string those together in a way that's legible to you, that you can understand, you know, in, before I do this task, this task is conform, is made up of these three steps. Before I do this, before this one's completed, I have, before this one starts, I need to make sure that these dependencies have already been made and that's difficult to, to do without having some tooling, but the tooling needs to be easy to use. Yeah. Bite-sized chunks, right? Yeah. 
yeah, like you said, if you show them a block of Python and say, well, when you have this case, modify this, yeah, yeah this one down here, you know, swap it out. You're going to get to, you're going to, you know, you're going to be writing Python code and R code or whatever, whatever it is at some point, Yeah, <laughs> you know, at some point you're going to need to drop way down into the code and write actual code, but you're not there yet. You can't start people at that level. It's, okay. it's more, I think I, I contend that it's more effective to start them at a higher level. And I think this is one of the things with one of the nice things about the analytics engineering drive that's going on in the market right now is that we, we are doing this. We are finding the, the analytics and we're finding the people with the domain knowledge and, you know, whether they come as BI developers or people with technical skills who, who have the domain knowledge, we're saying you start playing in this air, this level of the architecture here, start playing in this business focused part of the architecture. And then at some point, they're going to drop down into more complicated things as they need to. And I think that that's really the benefit of, to, to round out to the original question, I think that's really the benefit of analytics engineering. It's, it's going to be a way for yeah. us IT people to find the business, identify the business people, start getting them skilled up with using IT tooling and getting them to do productive work that they recognize is much better than what they were doing yesterday. And that we'll, we'll find the people who will eventually drop down and start doing data engineering work. Now that makes sense. So you're, I guess, to sum it up, your approach is all about finding those domain experts and then equipping them with a tool set, at least in the beginning that, that makes the learning curve much nicer, much less aggressive. And then they'll naturally get more and more technical and will be able to handle, yeah. be less handholding yeah. as their, as their journey down this road, but they'll have, they'll bring that technical expertise or that domain expertise. Now, is that a challenge? I mean, you, like you mentioned, most of these people have full-time jobs. Do you see that it, there is also with their increase of technical ability that they transition out of those, those their nine to five roles. Do they just become so do they just become so much more proficient that they can, they're able to take that on without interfering with their typical nine to five duties? I I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer to that. It's it's a tough one. Probably just that, depends, right? Yeah. The, that's the one. That's one that I really struggle with. So. The approach that I took was, you know, you're, you're going to have to find, if you have this problem, you're going to have to come up with a solution that's specific to your particular environment. You know, there isn't one right, right way to do something. And you're going to have to figure out what the blend looks like, you know, within the constraints that you have, you know, organizationally, this is a difficult one, you know, is this IT? getting more people or is this the business taking IT people? I, you mm -hmm. know, that's organizational structure stuff. And uh, without senior level support saying, this is how we're going to start. This is how we're going to start doing this. Um, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to turn it. It's going to be a fight. Um, and no one's going to win. Well, someone will win, but nobody's going to win. Um, so I don't know how to do that. One of the things that I was, 
trying to present here was, okay, let's go to the extreme end of it. Let's, let's put some guardrails way out on the edges that say, okay, we're going to treat everything as code, no GUI applications. We're going to limit the, that code to things like functions. Um, it's, it's much easier to do this on the Unix side, you know, whether you're a Linux shop or an Apple shop, um, it's harder to do it on the windows side because they're just, you know, we don't have 30 years of doing data manipulation on the command line on the windows side. Um, PowerShell is pretty great. I, I didn't choose to go that direction. Although, you know, most companies are windows shops, so it's worth doing that. I just didn't have the time to, to go do that. All, all the easy work was done on the, the Unix side of the fence for me. Yeah. Um, you know, don't go write things from scratch. Somebody has already solved these problems. We've been dealing with data management problems for, for decades. Yeah. Um, the problems have already been solved somewhere. Go find out, go find the tools that work on those problems and use them and see yeah. how far you can get. And by kind of going on the far edge, you know, learn some command line work, work with applications that are friendly to this kind of work and see where you get. So that's, that's a, that's a push from the architect side of things to say, okay, well, what would this look like if we did it totally different than the way we're doing it right now? You know, we're, we're not using low code tools. We're not using drag and drop ETL tools. We're going to just write some code and see how bad, how bad could that be? I mean, if you look at airflow, there's a lot of code in there. It's complicated. There's a lot oh, of, yeah. you know, there's a lot of Python code. There's a pretty steep Python knowledge um, curve. You have to climb up in order to be able to write a DAG in Airflow. Can we do something that's a little bit better? And again, one of the tricks is, can you narrow the scope down to what the person with the domain knowledge needs and can understand, you know, can keep in their head? And that helps to keep the scope down. So that they don't have to know everything about everything. They just need to know enough to do the work they need. So the data sets tend to be smaller. The scope of the data tends to be smaller. And it, that makes it easier to approach. And when you throw something into a big monolithic tool with a big, you know, um, monolithic ETL job, for instance, because that's the big scary one, because there are all these boxes and wires. And if you really broke it down, it's really complicated. So can we... We narrow that down to just the work I need to do so I can get an idea of this. Side benefit will be yeah. the technical people or the, the business people also get to see that the technical jobs are, are really hard. I mean, there's a reason that there are IT professionals who are, yeah. who are specialized in this particular silo because you know what? This work is hard. Yeah. And don't discount, you know, they're not just sitting there in their desks doing nothing all day, waiting for things to break and to get your call that, you know, my dashboard broke. There's a lot of complicated work and there is a side benefit here, a little side yeah. benefit that if people find out how complicated this really is, how, how important the work is and how complicated it is, that they will be a lot more accommodating when they throw a whole bunch of requirements over the fence and say, I need this, I need this data tomorrow. And, you know, and we've all seen this, I need this data tomorrow and I go work and, you know, I go 
work on it for a week and I put it out there and then the table sits, the table gets used once to answer one specific question and then it sits there. And yeah. six months later we go, why, why is anybody even using this table? You, know, you, you haven't refreshed the data yeah. in three weeks. It broke. Nobody knew. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a give and take. Yeah. And the organizational thing worries me and figuring out what appropriate, what's the appropriate, um, data literacy development program you need mm -hmm. to, to have what's appropriate for your organization. What are you willing to, what, what do you have to decentralize and what really should you keep centralized is, is a difficult question. And it, and it really does vary from organization, you know, from company to company. Yeah. I think that's such your, your point about domain experts or the business gaining an appreciation about the difficulties of data engineering or anything in the IT space. Um, that's huge. I think that's a, yeah. that's a great point. Uh, I, you <clears throat> oftentimes, I mean, we've both been around the block for a long time, um, multiple times <laughs> that, um, um, you know, people say, well, I want IT to do this. And they think in their mind, they're thinking, well, this can't take more than a day or two, right? Maybe yeah. even in the same day, but sometimes, oftentimes it isn't. And if they can gain an appreciation, if the, if the reason is valid, why it's going to take longer, they can gain that appreciation and it just smooth things over. The communication becomes more effective yeah. and the relationship obviously gets stronger. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and uh, likewise. We don't, uh, we, we don't appreciate how complicated the business really is. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't understand the complications of trying to maintain a customer relationship over the years or work with supplier problems. I mean, you know, a good example yeah. everybody's aware of right now is, you know, we have lots of supply chain issues. We didn't know, I mean, we, we didn't know that the supply chain was that complicated. Yeah. No, very true. Yeah, yep. we do. Yeah. And also business people, they don't know uh, if they have trouble expressing, hey, this is my requirements for the solution. Maybe they only have a partial idea because they're rolling with it. The, their problem set is evolving over time. What they told you a year ago is going to be different because they have a, a new, you know, big customer that's come on board. They have new requirements. Things are often changing and people in IT like ourselves get a little bit jumpy as to, Oh, wow. Why are things changing so much? Right. That's yeah. And that so I'm, I'm going to do a little, I'm going to do a little side side trip here. So that was one of the, one of the first things in the business section of the book was to talk about this concept called that um, Kent Beck, who was one of the original signers of the manifesto for agile development. And um, when he was at Facebook, he, one of his jobs was to figure out and evangelize how Facebook does their development. And he swears it was all Facebook, although it's all in extreme programming explained his first book, you know, from 2000 and something. Uh, and, and this idea is that you have you, your, your products go through this life cycle and there's an explore phase where the, the key to explore is you just don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. So case of getting a requirement set from somebody in the business, really what that is, is I have an idea, you know, use, we'll use the data, the data science terms that, you know, the data scientists are trying to get people to use, you know, I have a hypothesis that, that this might be going on. I'm going to invent what that requirement 
really is when it first comes to us from the business is I have a problem that I'm seeing. I think the solution is this. I need a data set and a visualization and some tooling around this problem. But what they don't ever tell you is, I don't know if that's correct or not. Well, sometimes they tell you it's correct and you know you, you find out later it's not. But really what that is, is I don't know what I don't know. So you need to have a, you need to develop a solution and work in a way that accommodates that lack of knowledge. And you try lots of things and they should be, you should be able to try and fail very quickly. And then eventually you'll figure out something that gets traction and then you'll get, so going back to the quality warehouse thing, we, we rebuilt the warehouse three times. We rebuilt it once because the data was just wrong and we, it was just wrong. We went and got better data. We rebuilt it again because we didn't understand the data we were getting. And then we finally got it on the third try. We, we got something that was going to deliver some consistent value that actually reflected what we were seeing on the plant floor lined up with people's experience, you know, the stories that people had about the way things worked, which is important. You know, what's the, what's the dialogue around this data? What's the story around the data? It lined up with that. So we were good, but you go through, you have to get through that, ex that explore phase very quickly. And then you go into expand, you know, I've got a solution. I'm going to ramp it up. I need more data. I need this data and not that data. And things are always breaking because the system I started off with, because I tried to use the original system I built and that isn't going to work anymore. So I need to, I need to get more data. I need to do more complicated analytics. Things are breaking all the time, but you're scaling up to get to that usability point where things are stable. That's so that's the, the ramp up is expand. And then the stable is explore. You know, I have my 10 people. You know, originally we thought everybody in the company was going to use this, but it's really 10 people, you know, two people in finance and then one person in engineering and then a spattering of people who just come in here periodically. And then the person who's going to collect the metrics to put on the PowerPoint presentation to go to the senior executive. They come in here once a month, you know, so, but it's, it's really three people. You know, how big do you make a system that's used by three people? Yeah. The, the answer is it should be probably smaller than you, than you build. Yeah. That's you know, a soul-crushing realization yeah, in some that regards, is, that, right? That is, a, that is particularly for the, those of us who like bright, shiny things. Yeah. And, you know, bigger is better. And, you know, the entire industry found that out with Hadoop. You know, we just need to build a big, huge data lake and put all the data back in it. But we've been doing that for a long time. When I worked at HP, the um, senior executive, the, the, C, the CTO had a famous saying that drove us nuts, which was, I want to know everything about everything. Like, yeah. Okay. You're going to have a big data warehouse that nobody's going to use. Yeah. All right. See how that goes for you. Yeah. At um, least with the data lake, you don't spend near the amount of time with the um, modeling aspect that you would with the you, data warehouse. You don't spend, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. And, there is a lot to be said for putting the data some in a cabinet somewhere, but eventually you're going to have to do that modeling. But what typically yeah. happens is, you know, how do you do that modeling? It is a lot more complicated than, you know, just building some SQL tables and, and querying the data. And then you find out with Hadoop, this was a yeah. big, this was a big one that was a showstopper for me. Yeah. 
I, what do you mean you can't join across all of these tables? Because my data is spread way out over he, here on the edge. You know, what, I, what you need to, to answer this question is a snowflake schema. And what do you mean I can only do dimensional, you know, fact table and dimension table modeling? Uh, that that isn't going to work for this data without putting a whole bunch of intermediate steps in place to get me to where yeah. I can do that dimensional modeling. Yeah, this system isn't going. You know, Hive isn't going to work for this. Yeah, the data so, lake disappointment is. Uh... That's definitely a vast conversation yeah. for another so, time. <laughs> so you get into expand and you find out, you know, I've got a great solution for my 10 users, three of whom are my daily users. But at some point, the thing we always forget, and this is where I think 3X turns into 4X, which is there's a, you need to shut down that system eventually. At some point, that system's going to go away and you need to exit out of that system. So you need to be prepared Really, from really somewhere when you're expanding, you need to start thinking about well, how is this going to how is this going to shut down? Am I going to have a lot of infrastructure to turn off? Am I going to have a lot of complicated intertwined logic to unthread when I pull this solution off? When you know, like as you said, when the, a year later, the executives say this isn't our business has changed and the the way we were doing things is now different, and we need to redo that thing you were doing because, you know, reality changed on us and how difficult yep. is it going to be to unwind that? So you really yep. need to think about how you yep. exit out of your solution um, pretty quickly. The earlier you can think about, do I know how, you know, a lot of, a lot of architecture work is about um, risk management and thinking about how, I can minimize the risk today and also minimize the risk in the future. And one of the big ways, one of the big things that you have to think about is how do I shut this thing down? What's it going to take? Yeah. Um, is there an easy way to do this? And that, and that gets into these products that we're building as we're starting to explore the, this, the thing that's in the book is really a exploration tool. It's a date. It's a data, you know, it's a data discovery tool. That you could you you could put it into production, but how long you keep it in production is is a question that remains. You know, how long would you keep something like this into production? The answer is it depends. How many users do you have? You know, how yeah. does this fit in with the rest of the the rest of the environment you have? You, you yeah. know, if you've got a good data warehouse, you you might want to use a data discovery platform to figure out and prototype things, and then take those requirements that you're that are good because you have people actually using the solution, wrap that into the existing data warehouse and you're great. Maybe you don't need to change anything. Yeah. <clears throat> no, that, yeah, that's, that, that often becomes the tricky question about these types of data discovery prototyping uh, type of pipelines is um, yeah. Where do they end? Right. Yeah. Do they, do they end? Do they, can they, if they're, if they're, if they're reliable, there's people to support them. There's a clear path for advancement if needed. Um, if the question, depending on the answer to those questions, it determines the, the fate of, the, of, of those data discovery uh, pipelines. Yeah. Um, why don't we, so we, we obviously touched on 
the solution that you're proposing in the book uh, over the course of this conversation. But if you could walk me through kind of from uh, beginning to end, how, how, how this all stitches together. Okay. Okay. Buckle up. We're going to go down to the hundred foot level. Right. We've been at about the 10,000 foot level. Now, now we're going to go down to the hundred foot level. Okay. So there's, so the, let's talk about the workflow here. The workflow is a little bit different than the standard workflow. It's more like a software development. It's more like a software application deployment workflow where we are developing the solution. We build it and then we deploy it. So you are constantly going through the process of building, thinking about building the solution, and then you deploy that solution. There is, it's, you know, in the traditional data workflow world, build would be, you know, acquire the new data, you know, extract the data from the source, load it into the database, do the whatever transforms you need, and then you're done. This is a little bit different because of the technology that's underlying this. Remember, this is an exploration platform. So you might be able to get away with it here, not someplace else, um, where you're going to build an artifact, you're going to get the data, combine it with the data you already have, build an artifact, a standalone artifact, which is a web application with APIs and a GUI and the database all bundled together. And then you're going to deploy that as a deployable artifact. You know, think about the app on your phone. You know, it gets updated every, you know, sometimes every couple of days, sometimes, you know, a couple times a year, but the entire app gets redeployed. Now, one of the nice things that you get from that is you can, if you make mistakes, it's very easy to wind it back down. You know, if you've totally messed up, just deploy the last one. Don't deploy the changes that you made. Um, the the software stack are all Unix command line tools managed by the managed within the, the standard package manager. Um, a few Python command line tools. You know, Python's in there, but you don't ever see it. And then SQLite for the database. So um, that gives you a full featured relational database that can be bundled in with your application. There's no network. There's no network data transfer. And that is that gives you some ability to do this packaging up and deploying. Um, you know, in the software world, it's, you know, it's an immutable build artifact, you know, that you might throw in your, your artifactory. So you're talking you, one container for everything. One container. Yep. Which works if your data set is kept small. I mean, SQLite, SQLite will support up to, I think, 200 and, 81 gig of data, you would never do that. <laughs> don't, but, don't want to run up against the boundary. <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. And I don't know how many thousands of tables and, you know, thousand lines of, you know, thousand columns, whatever the, the, the design capabilities are much higher than you probably would ever want to go to. Definitely in this kind of solution where you're, you're deploying it up into, you know, some cloud infrastructure as a container. Um, so what that lets you do is keep everything in version control. It's all code. So everything is code. You can diff the code. You can see what change you made to a, um, the, you know, to a, a dashboard just by looking at the code and see where it broke and then go back and fix it and revert it. You can do all that, you know, kind of nice software development stuff. Um, 
So for orchestration, which is really the big problem everybody has, how do I automate this stuff? For orchestration, in the book I'm using Make. Uh, Make's been around since 1977. You know, if Make is good enough to compile the Linux kernel, it's probably good enough for your four data sources. It's probably good enough Fair for enough. more than that too. So the structure of Make is really neat. It's very simple. It has a target. You know, what do I? What am I going to do? What you know? What action am I going to perform on this database table? What file am I going to produce? And then there are dependencies. You know, so target colon, then your dependencies, one or more dependencies or zero dependencies. You know, what am, this thing has to wait for these other things to finish before it works, before it's executed. Now below that is a list of commands that you execute, and they may be you know. Make an entry in the log, go grab, go curl this data, go convert it, you know, go add in a couple of columns like where did the data come from, when am I processing the data to that CSV file, then write that CSV file here. That's the end of the, that's your extract process. Pretty straightforward, you know, curl the data, yep. you know, write some logs, and then do performance. A way to actions. establish a dependency, a list of yep. tasks that need to be completed in this order, probably some yep. ability to, hey, I just dropped this file here, so here's the name of it for the next process to pick up and do all yeah, of those so things. Yeah, so what would happen would be now you've got the next, now you've got the next step. Now that the data is there, which is now a dependency to a new task, go load it into a t this table. That just becomes a new, you know, it's task, colon, dependencies, and then below that, are the steps you want to do and you've got flexibility and you can create macros so that if you do the same, if you perform the same action over and over again, you can turn it into a little macro, which goes in the make file. And then it can be referenced by just calling that macro pretty straightforward. And all of the, you know, you can okay. insert variables. So some reusabilities. Yeah. Awesome. We'll, we'll throw a link to a demo that I just did for the whole solution from start to finish. It's, you know, grab, oh, grab nice. some popcorn because yeah. it's an hour we go through the front end and the back end and deploying to Google. So you can kind of see how this looks. It's, it's a lot of code if you're not used to looking at code, but it's the same pattern over and over again. So data sources for this. Um, one thing about make is make is designed to work against files. So if you have a file, if you're, if you start thinking about, well, what would the file be for this step? It's very straightforward. And then you go, is there a file for this? Like, is there a CSV file that I need to do something with? That's really straight. Make does that out of that. It's got all kinds of great tooling around whether or not there are errors and things. But when you start to do things like inside the database, when you start to do those transforms inside the database, it's a little bit less clear because those aren't files. And you may need to put in some extra in that macro. You may need to put in some extra tooling. Like after you're done with all this, do a select star count, you know, to, to return the number of records that are in that table and write them to the log file so that you can see when something, if something goes awry, you can just go back and look through the log file and figure out where things broke. Gotcha. Um, these are all really very simple software development type tasks, you know, like writing a test. So the first thing you should do is write the test that says, is the file there? Does it have the right header? 
If it does, then process the data. You know, that test-driven development focus. Um, nor, you know, the normal person who, you know, grew up doing great things in Excel doesn't think that way. You know, doesn't think of that yeah. test first. No. Write the, you know, test first, fail the test, write the code, pass the test, write the next test. You know, that test-driven development yep. flow. It's a little bit Well, different. yeah, Excel people are typically building one-off type things, right? Yeah. Repeatability yeah. is is not paramount to be successful yeah. in, in Excel. And when you, and that the great thing is if you do head down this path of building out a, this make file or this orchestration process is that you can say, this is, we do this, then this, then this, and it's all spelled out. Yeah. And the, the file, the make file gets executed by just executing the com a particular command, like make unit tests. And that runs all your unit tests. Make, just make, will run the entire thing. You know, it'll run the flow from start to finish. Make uninstall, delete everything, then make, run everything again, start to finish. Um, so you, you build, you need to think of, you know, you compartmentalize the work, the orchestration, and then you set up the dependencies, and then you can start to think about, well, okay, so once the system's out there, I'm going to incrementally update it every every Monday because I'm working with weekly data sets primarily. So I just go and run, I can just run make and that will work and I can schedule that with cron, works perfectly well. I can do make build and it'll go and upload the data but won't do anything else. So you can pick and choose which pieces of the orchestration you wanna run yeah. and it will run all of the dependencies that need to be accomplished in order to get you there. So, there are, there are lots of tools to do, you know, to help Unix tools to help you manage working with CSV files. That's probably the easiest place to start. Um, there are lots of ones to help you work with JSON files that come out of APIs. But the general idea here is you should probably, particularly in the experimentation, you should decouple your data from your application so that if your application changes, the data is still there. You don't have to replumb everything. You know, don't tightly couple the the load process with your transformation process so that you can, you could swap out, you know, again, thinking of exit, I'm going to dump this SQLite database and replace it with Redshift, but I have to work with the same data. So I want to make sure I do that well. And here's what, you know, the, the whole data lake concept, just putting it in, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, we put it on the SFTP server. And did the same thing. So lots of tools to work with CSV files. Um, the SQLite database lets you, you know, it's a full feature database with all kinds of, you know, full text search and range queries and all kinds of indexing options. Um, you, you know, it's a real, it's a really full functional database. Um, and the syntax lines up, they've been very good about lining the syntax up with um, Postgres so that the migration from SQLite to Postgres is very easy. Well, it has the JSON, the JSON query syntax in SQLite is going to be converted to the, will eventually make it to the, to be parallel, to mimic what's in Postgres because they're different now. And that's one little bit of a heartburn point. Um, but yeah, you could do things like query JSON, you know, stick JSON documents yeah. in there and you're good to go. I haven't, queried any JSON objects in Postgres for probably 
it's been a few years, actually about five years. I think it has. And That's it was, good. It wasn't great. It was. It wasn't. It's, it's, it wasn't a great experience for me. I'll be honest. But again, that gets to you know, if you've got a lot, if you've got a lot of JSON data to process, would it be easier? Is it JSON just because the API is spitting out JSON? Could the API spit out a CSV file, which would line up really well? Because this data isn't nested. So why are you putting it, wrapping it in this wrapper? Now, if the data is nested, you know, if it's this nested JSON document, that may be what you have to deal with. That may be the solution sure. for this particular type of data. But then you have to go, hmm, maybe I need a document database for this. Yeah. yeah. Maybe this would and be better served if I, if my platform was MongoDB or if it was Elasticsearch because that platform knows how to deal with that kind of data structure really well. And you start to separate, you know, you, yeah. you should be picking the appropriate platform components to do the job you need to do. And again, broken record here, if you're thinking about how you would exit out of that, then great. You know, how big does, how big can I get by with, Boy, should I be should I be using Elasticsearch and put all the JSON native JSON documents in Elasticsearch? Because I'm also using that for my search engine over here, and maybe I can talk to the marketing folks who are using this for the search engine on the website. Maybe I can carve off some space on their cluster to do the processing of this operations data. Yeah, that is in J that just happens to be in JSON format. You start to figure out how to. Yeah, how to build a much more sensible platform rather than trying to make one thing do lots of different things it wasn't really designed to do yeah. or scale up to a level that it, we don't need it to scale to or can't it can't scale to. I noticed during this conversation that you certainly utilize a lot of open source tools. I assume that was intentional. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to keep it, you know, there are one of the things that, so almost all of the problems that we have day in and day out have been solved before. Go find the solution to those problems. In the open source community has done a great job of working through these common problems that we have, leaving the edge cases to be handled specifically. So like for instance, in the, the web front end for the application. So you, you the web front end for the application works like this. We'll, we'll go down, you know, go up a little bit. Point this application, this Python application called Dataset, at this SQL or at this SQLite database. It will build out the complete interface for you. It'll build a nice table interface where you can sort and you know sort and delete column, you know, remove columns from the table. It will let you execute um, ad hoc queries, SQL queries. It will build the C. If you put a bunch of filters in the table and use a bunch of facets to help filter the data down and you hit view SQL, it will give you a SQL statement that matches the filters you put in. And then you can go click on the, you know, draw a chart and you can build out a bar chart based on that data. All without having to ask, do any development or ask people anyone to do any particular work for you. That's Which then slick. means that you can get a, you can get a good requirement set down. You say, this is the data. Let me tell you how I'm using this data right here. And APIs, you go up to the URL, 
and you change the HTML to CSV and you get a, see a page of CSV data. Change it to JSON, you get a page of JSON data. And it's all built in. Don't, you don't need to go build an application to go put an API on top of this data set. It's all there. Just use it. That makes sense. What, can you talk to me a little bit more about the security aspect of a solution like this? So I'll pull in the data set thread. So data set has some plugin, has a, a pretty robust plugin architecture, and they've got some plugins for security. You know, do you how, lots of different ways to handle security at the application level. But the first place you need to start is you need to start looking, handling security. At, well, let's look at the data we have which data, the data that we have, for the data we have, what are the security requirements for that data? You know, everybody's familiar, you know, PII data, you know, can I get, you know, drive social security numbers in? Is it really appropriate for me to have someone's home address in here? Or should I obfuscate that somehow before it goes into the system? Should I, do I have data that, uh, am I compliant with the California security regulations? You know, personal information regulations, you know, GDPR in the UK or, or in the, in Europe, um, do I have data in this solution that would trigger me to think about the security of the actual data much more closely than I, than I am today? Then you have to ask the question, do I need to have this data in here at all? Maybe I need, so one of the advantages to doing this small, tightly, tightly bound solution is that Maybe you need a solution with less security constraints and one with more security constraints. And you just build them at the same time. You know, you build the solution, remove the tables that are problematic, publish the solution two different directions. Starts out the same, but then it splits to, to answer different use case scenarios. Um, the, in the then the next level, so the first one is, you should, we need to do a better job of limiting the data in our solutions uh, based on the security requirements that we actually have and be much more careful about what data we have and start thinking about data governance from the standpoint of security. And if you have real reasons to have someone's home address in the solution, maybe you don't deploy this to the public internet. Yeah. Yeah, I know, think it's just, just avoid the whole situation. Absolutely. And, you know, keep this, this piece local, but there may be things that, that do need to go to your suppliers that should be on the public internet and remove that data, obfuscate the data, do whatever you need to do to, to meet that requirement. And the trick is you need to have a solution in that case. That's very easy to, to make these kind of filtering decisions where you're, you know, you're, you're dropping tables out of the solution because they're prob they will be problematic if somebody got visibility to these yeah. things or, or use them in the wrong way. The other thing is, of course, at the top level, so we're deploying to the cloud run infrastructure. They have their whole, Google's got their whole, whole identity and access management framework that you can put on any of the containers that you deploy. And the answer to how do you handle security? All of the above. Don't publish data that you don't need to publish. Mm -hmm. Publish only the data that you absolutely need. No more, no less. Make sure that that system is able to protect itself. Make sure that the infrastructure you're pulling to also 
offers the level of protection to keep people in there. And I think this is one of the nice things about thinking about deploying databases as containers that we, you know, a more distributed model with smaller data sets is that if you have a problem with your, if you made a mistake um, in the, in the, at, at Raytheon, we used to call these data spills. You know, if you had a data spill, what's the solution? And if with a traditional warehouse or, you know, a, a data lake environment, if you have a data spill, what do you do? We used to call it draining the swamp. You have to drain the swamp. That was the, that was the worry. You know, you, you got to start from scratch and make sure that that never, that, you know, you, the risk was contained. Um, in this case, it's not that difficult. You just say, um, yeah, we should pull all of these. Not only should we pull the container we just deployed, but we should pull the history of all those containers that Google stores. We're just going to delete it all. And then we will redeploy a container that doesn't have this problem. And we're good to go. You know, someone hacks into your server. Just blow the server away. Redeploy it. Yeah. You know, the footprint's much smaller. So, you know, the yeah, standard the benefits of all in one versus a distributed yeah. solution yeah. that you're like, well, where do we even start? Let's yeah. And who knows where all this stuff is at or where it's been. Yeah. And that's yeah, a very it. difficult concept to start to play with because that isn't, that hasn't been the model that we've been up. That hasn't been our operating model. You know, we have the data infrastructure over here, the front end infrastructure over there and, you know, our applications that are using the data, it's this intertwined mess of things that you have to have for certain problems. But this is what I'm, what I'm proposing is maybe there is something we could do. Serverless, what does serverless offer us for data? We know what serverless offers us for microservices, both the good and the bad, because it's, you know, it's not easy mm -hmm. to start decentralizing this stuff. What would that look like for data? And probably the first thing, and it's not just, you know, my serverless data platform where I have my storage and my compute layer separated and I can, I get a um, scale to zero environment. You know, if I'm not using it in the middle of the night, don't bill me for it, which is fantastic. But you still have the other infrastructure that you need to put on top of your database that you need to manage separately. And maybe if your problems can be narrowed down small enough you could put them all in the same container. You'll bake the data into the container and deploy that. And maybe that would work for some of the, the use cases we have. It definitely would work for data exploration work because you shouldn't, you know, yeah. you're not going, you know, is your data exploration work going to require a terabyte of data? It might. Will it require 10 terabytes? If it does, you're probably doing something that isn't, this isn't appropriate for. You need to be yeah. querying. Now, is your even is your infrastructure even set up for you to do a data science project where you're iterating over 10 terabytes worth of data or 100 terabytes or, you know, whatever, per, you know, petabyte, whatever it happens to be? Is your data infrastructure set up for you to just be constantly querying that data set over and over again? Maybe not. Columnar yeah. databases help for that. But yeah. again, that's a different platform. And maybe you need a columnar database for this. And maybe you need a, a really robust relational database for this other thing. Yeah. 
I, it's going to be interesting to see how things like Fargate, and that's AWS's solution for serverless container type things, which seemed very appealing. But I don't, I don't hear a ton of people utilizing that. They tend to more gravitate towards more the traditional serverless, like you know the lambdas and and yeah. um, you know things of that. You know more of the um, yeah, I guess lambdas in the in AWS world. Uh, yep. Maybe I'm not talking to the right people, but it does seem like that's a a fairly uh, appealing solution with that with that uh, you know bill you know zero billing when you're not you know not utilizing it. Surprised yeah. more people aren't are going down that path. Yeah. I think the I think the catch is that it in in order to get the full benefit you need to change the architecture a little bit where you're bundling the data in with your application so that you deploy one container yeah. at a time to, to really get your head around, wait, wait, wait a second. I can, you're telling me in the, the end of the demo that we'll link to shows how that, what this looks like on Google's cloud run console, where you go, I have one, I have zero containers running. I have one container running. Then I have zero containers running. Then I have three containers running. Then I have six containers running. And then I have one container running. And then I have six again. And all the blank spaces in those charts represent time I am not being billed for. Yeah. So one period of time, like when it, when I was writing the book and I was just, it, you know, I was just, you know, I would hit it every so often. I would hit it when I was doing the test after I deployed. My charge was very low. Very, very low. Like yeah. I'm not even sure it was worth it for them to bill me. When I do the Unix command AB, the Apache bench Unix command, again, getting back to some of the commands, you know, run Apache bench with hundred with hundred concurrent connections and 10 users against this URL, just run that. And what I could see on the, the cloud run console was, oh, it would spin up you know, six containers to meet the load. And when the test was done, it would scale them back. So you know, how do you handle high avail availability? You, well, you don't because it's handled automatically for you. You know, if you need more yeah. containers, it's there. If you made yeah. a mistake, you can roll the containers back. You know, you can go back three containers and yeah. promote that to production and then go fix the problem. The ability for you to only be built from a business standpoint, here's what's really cool about it. Now you have your data solution, you deploy it, you are billed for utilization. Now the question is who's using what product? I can look at the, I can have the finance people go look at the billing. Well, who's getting charged the most? Now I know who's actually making use of the system yeah. And, and that, you know, the normal way we'd handle that is the unanswerable question, like who was actually, what queries were being run? Who was using these? Is this table used? Is this report used? Why don't you start from the finance end and say, yeah. Hey, your system is not being, you know, we, we're, we are getting billed. Let's just say under $10 a month for your solution. How much time are you spending working on that solution? Maybe we need to retire it. Maybe we need to roll it into something else, or maybe we need to charge you for that. Maybe we can start charging you for your real billing. 
for utilization. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kinds of neat financial things you can start to do with the scale to zero type deployments that we weren't able to do before. You know, I need to go out, you know, in the, in the bad, bad old days, you know, I need to go buy servers. I need to have my, you know, high availability environment and I need to have my test environment and I need to have my development environment. And all of a sudden, you've, you know, we figured this, you know, Amazon showed us the way. You know, stand up your, stand up your VM, um, shut it down when you're not using it. If you just decide to keep it running, we'd be more than happy to charge you for it. You know, if you want to keep your dev environment running 24 seven, mm-hmm. charge you for it. That's great. Yeah. All too happy. So, yep. So. Great. Well, Brian, do you have any uh, parting thoughts before we wrap up the conversation? Yeah. If someone would like to, you know, if people would like to get in touch with me and talk about, you know, talk about this further, um, one of the questions that I'm really interested in is this data literacy question. So I would be, I, I would love for people to get in touch with me and let's just have a conversation about the data literacy problems that you're having and what you think the solutions are. Because I have an idea of what the T-shaped skills need to be, but I could use some help trying to figure out exactly how we would go about building those things. I'm not, I'm not quite sure where that's going yet, but that's a question that I don't have a good solid answer to. So if people want to get in touch with me, contact information will be in the um, notes Absolutely. here. Um, if there's anything else that you found interesting you want to talk to me about, that would be great. Um, if you'd like to, you know, do a pilot project or, you know, do some consult, you know, talk, you know, have some consulting yeah. work, um, I'd be happy to talk about that as well. Um, so feel free to reach out. I'm on yeah. Twitter and LinkedIn and um, the website contact information will be there as well. Uh, buy the book, thumb through it. That would be great. Yeah, all the all those links will be in the yep. show notes and in the video description, like Brian said, yep. uh, his contact information. And you mentioned we'll get a link to that demo that you referenced a couple times. So that'll, that'll be, uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to follow up. That'll be one of my follow-ups to watch that demonstration to kind of solidify some of the, the, the conversation in this discussion. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Yeah, folks, uh, please... Uh, Subscribe if you aren't already and like the video uh, and review uh, the podcast on Apple, if you would, please. Uh, Everyone have a great day.